Hello everyone, just a little bit of housekeeping before we get into today's episode all about testosterone. This one a little bit more for the fellas, but uh, ladies, if you have a significant other who might be interested in learning about how testosterone works in the body and what to do when it gets low, perhaps you can forward this on to your husband, boyfriend, whoever it is in your life who might benefit from this information. But before we get into that episode, we've been absent for a couple of weeks, and that is because Dr. Appleton and I have been working on the launch of our Cardio Metabolic Health Coaching Program. And that has launched with our early bird members. And if you want to get on the wait list for the next intake, just send me an email to tommy at hybridfitness.ca with something related to the health coaching program in the subject line, and I will put you on the wait list. The next program will, uh, the next program intake will open up in the next four to six weeks. So if you want to get in on that and learn more, just shoot me an email, tommy at hybridfitness.ca, and I'll make sure you get all of the updated information when it comes out. Enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, where we teach you how to navigate the complex world of diet and exercise with medical and pragmatic views of the human body. Join Dr. Andrew Appleton and me as we give you the tools and resources to prevent and reverse lifestyle-driven diseases while optimizing fitness and getting the body you want. Enjoy today's episode. Now we are recording. Oh, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> so then I'll let you intro this because clearly you've thought about it more than I have. I've thought about it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to chat about testosterone. Do you know anything about that? Have you heard of it? I know that I've got more than you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't know if that's true. I'm not sure how, how tightly correlated testosterone levels are with... with the actual physical appearance of testosterone <laughs> implied uh, traits. Right. I know that there's, you know, clearly there is some correlation, but I assume there's uh, some sort of rate of return on that as well. Where I'm, I'm guessing with how bald you are that your testosterone <laughs> levels are probably reasonably At high. At least my DHT is, <laughs> uh, is probably unreasonably high. But then with that said, if you think about, uh, if you think about like bodybuilders, unnatural bodybuilders that are absolute freaks. I'm sure there's a genetic component to that, but maybe there isn't a maximum to what testosterone can give to you because to be 350 pounds at 4% body fat is not something that's attainable without naturally a, a yeah. serious, but I guess that's more than just testosterone. That's probably a, a, a large quantity of various anabolics that have to go into. Uh, yeah, there's probably that. some growth hormone and, and other stuff going on there. But I'm sure I mean, there's the, a lot of stuff going yeah, on there. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about <laughs> the, the risks of these things. But anyway, I just I see I see a lot in the in media, social media about testosterone replacement therapy. Yeah, um, I've, I've been asked by by members of, in the gym <laughs> that we should cover this topic. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just an interesting thing. I think in, in the U S especially there's a lot of, uh, direct to consumer, 
marketing for testosterone replacement therapy. There's a ton of misinformation out there. And I think it's just good to, to talk about it. And you know, what, what are the appropriate uses? What are the potential benefits, the potential risks, etc. So why don't we start with when someone should consider even learning about something like testosterone replacement therapy yeah so this is i mean obviously this is for men <laughs> for the most part sometimes women do you be careful there <laughs> sometimes women do go on testosterone replacement therapy but it's very rare yeah um so i mean people might be surprised at how common testosterone deficiency actually is so as we know when when boys go through puberty they crank up their testosterone levels like crazy uh, and that's when they go through all of their, you know, physical changes in puberty. And uh, so your maximum testosterone levels are basically during adolescence. And then there's a, a steady decline throughout the rest of your adult life. But it seems to fall off a cliff more so beyond age 40. So the best estimates are that actually about 40% of men over age 40 are testosterone deficient and may be candidates for testosterone replacement therapy. So that's that's a huge number of people. Well, and by modern medical standards of, of what low would be, I assume is much different than what low would be 50 years ago. Because <laughs> I think the the literature now is, is fairly clear that just on average men's testosterone levels are declining steadily in, uh, in a significant way. So if we're basing what normal is off of an ongoing moving average, then even what would be considered a normal testosterone level, uh, you know, low to mid normal, is probably not would be normal 100 years ago. Yeah, so that this this is one of the major challenges is actually determining what what is normal and what is low. So when you go from one lab to another lab, that's going to be different because they'll use different calculations for population averages. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also different components and, and types of testosterone that we're measuring and whether or not it's bound up to protein. So the, t the testosterone in your system, when we typically measure a serum level, you're measuring your total testosterone. So that includes the fraction that is bound to a protein called sex hormone binding globulin, the fraction that's bound to albumin, which is another the most common protein circulating in your bloodstream, and then the free testosterone, which is only about 1% to 2% of your total testosterone, and that's the stuff that's actually active, hitting the receptors on your tissues to actually have the metabolic uh, effects that it's supposed to have. So when you measure a total testosterone, you're getting all of those things. So it doesn't necessarily tell you how much uh, active free testosterone that you have. You can measure that separately. And many people would argue that we should be doing that routinely. But of course, that's not agreed upon in the guideline setting bodies. And in Ontario, it's not an insured test. So it's often not ordered because people have to pay for it out of pocket. Gotcha. So... I think it's probably better that people go on symptoms rather than levels. And, and for all of those reasons, right? Number one, because if you feel great and you're in good physical condition, what does it matter what your testosterone levels are? As well as just having a total testosterone that is a certain 
level, high or low, doesn't necessarily mean the functionality of testosterone is is optimal or or not, right? So um, if you go and get a blood test done, and for whatever reason, maybe it's just the age that you're at, your doctor wants to throw that in there, and then it comes back that you have low testosterone, and you felt great every moment leading up to that, and then you go, oh no, I have low testosterone, I need some sort of intervention here. This is where, uh, and not just with testosterone, but with any, with tracking any blood markers, this is where it gets tricky for the average person because something, a problem that didn't exist becomes a problem because of the information that they look at, where now you're chasing an intervention that is by all means unnecessary because if you feel good and there's no actual perceptual problem, what is the point of trying to intervene for a problem that doesn't exist aside from on paper, especially with the uh, with how fleeting it, it can be to measure blood markers? It's just a moment in time. It's not necessarily indicative of what's going on in your body all the time or most of the time. That's right. And your testosterone levels will fluctuate throughout the day based on if you slept okay, if you have stress, if you ate... So the, the standardized time to measure testosterone is after fasting overnight between 8 and 10 a.m. That raises some challenges if you're a shift worker and you work nights, but I mean, you basically have to figure out where in your normal circadian or diurnal, diurnal rhythm is the best time to, to actually measure that. So you'd have to do a little bit of homework with your physician to time that for the best time. But it's that, that two-hour window after fasting where we, we believe is the best time on a, you know, across a population to measure it and determine whether or not it's high. But you're absolutely right. I mean, every, everything needs to be taken in context. And this goes for any medical test. Like, there's no point in screening populations for a whole pile of things because just based on probability, you know, 10% of the time, somebody's going to be positive for something. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's important. Uh, when we measure uh, like immunology markers for autoimmune disease, this is classic and comes up all the time. We get referrals for patients that have a positive serological marker for autoimmune disease. And they go, well, okay, so what do we do? We need to do more tests. Do we need to look into this? And then you talk to the patient. And they're like, I'm fine. Like, I don't have joint pain. I, I don't have night sweats like they've got none of the typical symptoms and you go well so you just have this increased protein flying around in your blood but it doesn't mean anything it may mean that you'll develop something later on or not i honestly have no idea but it's not worth responding to unless there's actually something going on um to, to your original point though about the testosterone levels in men declining over the decades not just within the individual, but in the population and overall. So that's probably in lockstep with the amount of obesity and metabolic health that, uh, problems that we have. So your, I mentioned sex hormone binding globulin, that decreases with being overweight or obese. So those, those two are very much correlated. So if somebody's obese, it's very likely that they're probably gonna have lower testosterone levels. Yeah, I would but, think. I, go ahead. Oh, but even even if you compare person to person, there's such a broad range of levels that it's hard to know what to make of it as well. So, you know, someone whose testosterone level is half of another guy's could feel better than the person who has the higher testosterone. 
because of you know a whole host of of other factors sure i uh i posted an interesting article that that came out just the other day that was showing um men who work jobs where they regularly have to lift heavy things have considerably higher fertility uh as measured by sperm count compared to men who work jobs who don't do any heavy lifting at all and it was significant i think there was uh between a 30 to 40 percent reduction in fertility in men who don't work jobs that require heavy lifting based on sperm counts yes and i assume there's some other things at play there i couldn't this was uh this was like a summary of the article i, I wasn't reading the actual yeah. article itself um, well but, why would you do that <laughs> right uh but it, it's one of those things where so much has changed over the last century it's hard to point your finger at exactly why something like steady decline in testosterone would be because i'm sure there's environmental factors with our with what we drink and what we eat and what we're just environmentally exposed to every single day there's increases in psychological stress in social stresses things like that or have steadily inclined there's a higher demand on the expectation of working people as far as the amount of hours you need to work every day to succeed and then most homes having two working parents now that has stress on both the parents and the relationship and it's like all these different things it's how can you ever put your thumb on what the actual issue is anyhow i wanted to take a step back so let's if we know that blood measures are only helpful under certain circumstances what are the symptoms that somebody should look for so if you're feeling this or this range of 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 different symptoms you should go get tested because there's a chance that this is the actual root issue of your symptoms yeah so there's there's basically two tiers of symptoms so there's the the top tier which are most tightly correlated with testosterone levels so that is a a drop in sex drive or libido and then a reduction in spontaneous erections i'm not talking during the day when you're just (laughs) hanging out but the best time to is early morning erections is a normal physiologic thing that that men get or throughout the night or yeah so if you if you don't have that then that is an indicator that you might have low testosterone levels so those those would be the two top tier symptoms yeah i don't think men understand how Mm -hmm. abnormal it is to not have an erection every single night even if you're not awake while it's happening that's something that's supposed to happen essentially until you age to the point of sexual of like natural sexual dysfunction whatever that may mean uh but i think a lot of menopause yeah i think i think a lot of men who just uh, they're at the point where they've had kids they're married the romantic part of their life especially the uh perhaps frequent more intense uh various partner romantic part of of some men's lives is gone they think oh well this is just the point of life that i'm at where if you if you're going weeks at a time and you're not experiencing spontaneous erection throughout the night or in the morning like that's not normal right it's a a pretty strong indication that there's some problem that you should maybe be looking absolutely yeah so so if you're having either of those symptoms then for sure you should go and and get your testosterone levels checked the second tier is 
all of the non-specific stuff that happens in life that you it's basically impossible to tease apart from all of the things that you just listed with psychological stress and not sleeping well and so on so that's you know fatigue uh, you know particularly daytime fatigue if you never feel like you're well rested um, subjective weakness and you know that doesn't mean like I'm not getting the gains in the gym that I want. It's right. like well, most mostly this is going to be people who aren't exercising regularly, and they just kind of feel like ah, I just don't have any reserve energy and I'm weak overall. Like going up the stairs is a problem. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And then like so mental exhaustion or everyone in the long COVID era loves to talk about brain fog. So just these general non-specific symptoms, but of course all of those are associated with poor metabolic health, obesity, sleep apnea, insulin resistance, like just all of these things, but it's reasonable to along with all of your other metabolic markers to check a testosterone level in that circumstance because as you try to then optimize that person's lifestyle and behaviors and get them healthier, then testosterone replacement is something that should be a consideration. It's just when do we actually pull the trigger on that? That's the conversation that needs to be had. So if we're thinking about testosterone replacement therapy as very set therapeutic levels, where the idea is you're taking enough testosterone that it gets you to normal levels, even maybe normal high levels, but not to super physiologic levels where most of the side effects that you're trying to avoid are going to begin happening. In your opinion, is that a safe intervention for the majority of men, assuming that there's no like underlying thing going on where any sort of anabolic is going to, to worsen that underlying unknown condition. An otherwise healthy male who has low testosterone starts a testosterone re replacement therapy program. Do you see a downside to that? Uh, no, I think it can be perfectly safe as long as it's dosed appropriately and then monitored frequently enough to not have some of the the known side effects that can occur um, there's some wishy-washy literature out there on cardiovascular disease um, but I mean I don't think anybody agrees that there's a good signal to say that testosterone replacement therapy increases your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke um, or any other massive cardiovascular problems there is a lot of supporting evidence to suggest that it will improve your blood sugar levels, your lean body mass, uh, your you know, glucose disposal. It will reduce insulin resistance, uh, increase bone mineral density, like a, a, basically all of the things that we want to see when somebody needs to be optimized. Like we, we want to get rid of the visceral fat. We want to increase lean body mass. It will help you with all of those endeavors. So then what about with, with older men? Because there is an age where you are, are expecting to see a significant drop off in testosterone levels. Likely, if you think about it through an evolutionary perspective, you're going to get to the age where reproduction, where fighting, protecting all of these things, you're not the person for the job anymore. Right. So what do you need high levels of testosterone for? But for those ages, let's say it's, you know, a, a male's getting into his 60s uh, 
and there's that natural decline, the significant natural decline of testosterone. What do you think about testosterone for those men as almost an anti-aging therapeutic? Yeah, I don't know. Well, it, I don't know if I would market it as like an anti-aging therapeutic, but we know that the problems that arise with being elderly, so we can, you know, the geriatric population loosely defined as over 65, um, are all potentially improved to some extent with this form of therapy. So sarcopenia is very common. So when you don't have enough lean body mass to protect yourself, to do the functional things that you need, which increases your risk of having falls, uh, makes you know, increases your frailty, uh, increases your risk of becoming functionally dependent on other people. So if you want to protect that lean body mass, stay as functional as possible, and then along with that, you know, do the other good lifestyle things that you need to do to stay functional, like exercising, then yeah, it's potentially quite beneficial. But in those cases, you're, you're not shooting for really high levels. You're just shooting for something in the normal range. Uh, so the important conversation... Well, hold on. I just want to stop you there <clears throat> because in this instance, I'm talking about putting someone in an abnormal range because a normal range for someone who's between 60 and 70 is not the therapeutic range. So essentially, you're putting them in an abnormal range for that stage of life, hoping that the benefit of that is going to outweigh any potential risk. But there, there are published ranges by decade, right? So so you can actually see what's what's normal or what's average for a 60 to 70 year old, for a 70 to 80 year old versus a 20 to 30 year old. So you would suggest- so you, you could adjust your target based on what's known about what's And you think normal. that's what should be done? You don't think there's a benefit to a 65 year old having the average testosterone levels of a healthy 40 year old? I don't think we know enough at this point to, to make that determination. Gotcha. The, the other issue is you know, it's what are the downside effects? Um, so I mean, why don't we just why don't we just talk about that? So the the two major the two major things that come to mind are one, the prostate. So when you have higher testosterone levels, and especially when your five alpha reductase enzyme is active and that converts the testosterone hormone to DHT or dihydrotestosterone, which is a much more potent version of testosterone, which seems to act on specific tissues. So I made fun of you for being bald at the start. So DHT is one of the things that's responsible for male pattern baldness, which is why like Propecia is a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, which is one of the treatments for male pattern baldness because it reduces your DHT levels. So, but it also acts directly on the prostate and increases growth of the prostate. So prostate cancer is actually quite common. It's probably... I, very close to, if not the most common cancer in men. It's just that it's not as deadly as most other cancers. So the sort of you know colloquial thing in medicine is most men will die with prostate cancer. They don't die from prostate cancer. But if you're on testosterone replacement therapy and you end up with higher than average or super physiologic levels, then it will definitely increase the growth and potentially increase the risk of of accelerating prostate cancer that hasn't been detected. Is that is that really settled? It's I said potentially. 
<laughs> I thought you we, said definitely. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> you hear what you want to hear. Um, I, I'm making a time note here and re-listening <laughs> to that piece. Exactly. Well, it will it will definitely make your prostate grow. So, like, if you have BPH, so benign prostatic hypertrophy, which is the reason that older men have to get up and pee in the middle of the night or they have a weak stream or urinary hesitancy, it's because their prostate's big. So it will it definitely increase the size. And you can monitor that by measuring PSA levels, so the prostate-specific antigen levels. So anybody who's on testosterone replacement therapy should be having their PSA levels monitored as well. And if it goes above four in the units that we use, then that is a reason to kind of hit pause and have that person reviewed by a urologist. Maybe they need to go for a prostate biopsy and see what's going on. Well, not not just that, but if you have uh, if you have a history of measurements, wouldn't the acceleration of any growth, regardless of like if you have a That's if right. you have a PSA of uh, 0.5, then you start testosterone replacement, and a year later it's 1.5. That should be a strong signal that you should further investigate that. That's right. That yeah, issue. And, I, and I think the the absolute change of of one in any given year. Uh, would be enough of a concern that you need to get investigated. Certainly. I have a, a a friend of mine is a physician who part of his specialty is in men's health, and he does a lot of uh, testosterone replacement therapy. And he told me, he said, I've never seen changes in PSA, uh, significant changes in PSA in any of the men that I've done. Yeah. Testosterone, uh, testosterone replacement yeah, suggesting therapy. Suggesting that he's dose adjusting appropriately. As opposed to just shooting for super high numbers that's just going to jack up your DHT levels, which is going to potentially lead to this problem. Right. So, again, like monitored properly, dosed properly, it really shouldn't be a huge risk. But it is something that needs to be monitored. Now, isn't there a bit of a paradox there? And I'm sure there's a, a, a wise medical explanation for this. But if testosterone levels are so tightly correlated with prostate growth... Why is it that it is the the eldest population of men with the lowest testosterone levels who suffer the most prostate issues? I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. Go find the yeah. answer to that question. Yeah. Well, if you just think, and this is probably has to do with just with men when they live long enough, the prostate's going to continue to grow right. and potentially become uh, uh, potentially become cancerous. But there's no – if you would think that the correlation between testosterone levels and prostate growth are so tightly correlated, you would think that a teenage boy would have the biggest risk of prostate growth and a 75-year-old man would have the least risk of something like BPH. So how do you square that circle? Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to cause – a huge acceleration in growth this is just it's exposure over many many years that gets you to the point when it's potentially an issue because i'm sure that's that puts a lot of fear in men just because prostate cancer is without question the most notable form of male specific cancer right so it's something that men are always concerned about all the time their doctors are always talking about it getting your psa done and of course it's it's a common issue that men face uh, common complications with the prostate. 
But I think that's a deterrent for a lot of men to have an intervention that might otherwise be very helpful for them because they th and they probably have a lot of doctors who say like, oh, no, you don't want to go on testosterone yep. replacement because you're well, just going to get prostate cancer. Or if you've got a family history of prostate cancer. Um, and th there's not even agreement that uh, PSA should be done as routine screening for for enlarged prostate as men age. Yeah. So, you know, we screen for lots of other things, but I mean, the again, the Ministry of Health in Ontario doesn't cover PSA testing specifically for screening because it's felt that that's, there's not enough evidence to suggest that doing that on a population basis is actually going to reduce mortality related to prostate cancer. If it, you have a family history, the government will cover it. That's right, yeah. yeah. So if it's for diagnosis, I did air quotes, but this is a podcast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you know. Yeah. Um, so if it's if it's for diagnostic purposes, then it's covered. If it's for screening purposes, then it's not covered. So it just you know, if you get sloppy with your pen and check the wrong box, then it's covered. Right. But anyway, I digress. So that's something that you know before you start testosterone replacement therapy, then you should have your you need to know what your PSA is, and then should be monitored along the line. So, so that, that's one thing. So if someone has a family history yeah. of some form of prostate issue, but they're suffering from issues that are clearly related to low testosterone, you would still s suggest that person start that therapeutic, but just monitor it, it closely enough that it's appropriate given their family history. Yeah, I think as long as you know what your baseline levels are and you're going to be monitored along the way, then it should be fine. Do you have any idea how quickly something like that can turn into a problem? Like if someone has an underlying susceptibility to a prostate issue that testosterone replacement can accelerate, do you have any idea what like what time span that is? No. No. I don't I don't know if anyone does. Yeah, I'm just thinking in terms of like how often does someone need to be getting their blood work done? Like is annually oh, annually is annually uh, is annually is that cycle fast enough for somebody who might be susceptible? Probably. Okay. Yeah. Um so the the other thing that's that's a known risk is um let's call it your blood thickness. <laughs> so there's something called your hematocrit, which is the percent of red blood cells in your bloodstream. And normally it should be kind of in the 40 to 45% range, but as it increases, so if your hematocrit is above 50 or 55%, meaning that literally 55% of your blood is red blood cells, then that makes it thick and increases your likelihood of having a blood clot or having you know, a peripheral vascular disease issues or a stroke. So testosterone does increase the production of red blood cells and can increase the thickness of your blood. So again, this is something that needs to be checked at baseline, which you get with just a normal, like complete blood count, CBC, uh, which is very standard. So if your if your hematocrit is above 50% before starting therapy, then that something needs to be done about that first. Or if it creeps up above 55% while on therapy, then again, that's something that you either need to pause therapy, uh, but probably the easiest thing to do is just have someone donate blood. Right. I have will reduce your hematocrit. I have some questions specifically related to this. So, I've always had low platelets. Uh, as I didn't get my blood routinely measured until like my mid twenties, I would say I started getting interested in my own blood chemistry. 
I've had low platelets on almost every single blood test I've ever had, and I've had at least 30 to 40 over the past decade, let's say. Uh, and anecdotally, even as a kid, I was always an easy bruiser. Uh, I could see in my children how easily they bruise. There's always bruises all over their shins, all over their legs from the stuff that they get into. Um, and I also have a, a rare genetic condition that can make me susceptible to types of things like platelet destruction. And I feel fine. Like I'm not, I don't have low platelets to the point where what's there's low, like, like what's, an, what's the number? Like between 100 and 115 Okay, is probably about where I am. I don't think I've ever been, I don't even think I've ever gone down to double digits. I'm sure I have, but uh, sure. during actual blood testing, usually like low hundreds is where I sit. Okay. So not like dangerously low, but low enough where even as an adult, like I, I bruise quite easily. But I've never had a concern about like bleeding disorders, anything like that. But I've often thought, you know, should I look into some form of intervention to get my platelets up? But then I, but then I end up in this place wondering, for me, genetically, is there a good reason why my platelets are low? Because when you talk about blood thinness versus blood thickness, is my blood thinness like a familial adaptation because blood thickness for my you know line of genealogy is more likely to kill me with something where blood thickness <laughs> is not an issue for the average person but for me it is sure do you have any thoughts on that because this is something that i always struggle with no i've got thoughts it's something i always <laughs> struggle with especially when it's people uh chasing blood chemistry metrics is yeah. like just because something is out of the normal range doesn't mean it's good for you to try and put it in the normal range. Yep. Maybe there's a re maybe you're, there's a smart physiological reason that your body understands of why you need to be in an abnormal range in order to prevent something else yeah. from happening. So for I mean so a normal range all that means like when they give you the range like from x to y that's the range within which 85% of the population falls. So it's literally just like a standard deviation or two standard deviations from the average on either side. So that means that 15%, more than one in 10 people are going to fall somewhere outside of that normally. So having something outside that range, again, it has to be looked at within context. So when you when we talk about platelets specifically, uh, we know what the dangerous thresholds are for bleeding risk. So above 100, you're fine. Like there, there's no clinical increased risk of of having major bleeding problems with platelets north of 100 that's perfectly fine like if if you had to have brain surgery tomorrow your surgeon would be perfectly happy operate on you with platelets of 100. Once, good to know yeah so <laughs> there you go uh once you get down to 50 that's when we start to get more concerned about say surgical bleeding risk once you get down to 30 and there's an increased risk of bleeding for whatever reason, if you're going for a procedure, then we're, we're replacing platelets for people. But it's not actually until your platelets are below 10 that we get concerned about spontaneous bleeding. So you're just like sitting there in a chair and blood starts spurting out or you know leaking into your brain where you don't want it to so that's like it, you have to be really really low as so. opposed to the places where you want the blood to leak into your brain <laughs> sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 
I think about these things probably probably more than I should. But I know, for instance, because you talked about uh, giving blood as being an intervention for this particular problem we're talking about right now, as right. far as like hematocrit. Uh, but if you read the literature on blood donators, there's literature that suggests donating <laughs> blood is helpful for people's hearts. And then there's literature that shows the opposite, that sure. people who donate blood are more likely to have cardiovascular outcomes. And I wonder if it's just because of the randomness of, of research and not really being able to, to point the finger at anything specific, or if it's also just the phenotype, right? You have a person who, uh, who, who does better with thinner blood physiologically. They go in and they donate a bunch of blood, right? And as a result, they 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 thicken their blood for for uh, for the sake of simplicity, and then that person ends up having a heart condition because they're unnaturally increasing the viscosity of their blood, where otherwise they would be better off with thinner blood. Do you even like? Is this something that it's even worth thinking about as a physician? No, <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't think so. Uh, I, if I man, if I could add up the number of hours in medicine that we talk about blood clotting and blood thinning it's astronomical like we there are so many blood thinners on the market right for therapeutic reasons like if somebody has atrial fibrillation or they've had a pulmonary embolism or a dvt in their leg they're going to end up on blood thinners you know used to be warfarin but now it's more often the newer generation versions but then of course that increases your bleeding risk. And so we have people that come in with complications of bleeding from being on blood thinners. And then you go, oh, well, how do we balance that with the risk of having a blood clot that they just had? And it's just ridiculous. Well, it's like the aspirin a day. There was aspirin a day. There was scientific consensus on it. And then that changed. And if I'm not mistaken, I think aspirin a day is making a comeback. Uh, not to my knowledge. So it, it's, it's another risk benefit analysis, but the most, the best evidence that's out most recently is there's no increased benefit to outweigh the risks by taking aspirin for primary prevention. So if you haven't had a heart attack or a stroke or peripheral vascular disease, it's most likely that you're not going to benefit from being on aspirin preventatively. Uh, with the proviso being that if you're high risk, like if you've got diabetes and known atherosclerosis and a whole pile of other things, you've had, you've got everything except the heart attack, probably you're going to benefit from being on aspirin. So yeah. it's, again, it's, it's a judgment call. We're way off topic now, but yeah. another fun, another fun <laughs> fact about platelets. So when you have too many platelets, so there's a condition called um, thrombocytosis essential thrombocytosis, which is a genetic mutation that jacks up your platelet levels to above a thousand. Patients who have that, interestingly, don't clot, they bleed. So is that in response to the platelets? So you, you get an, an acquired deficiency in one of the blood clotting factors called, called von Willebrand factor. So when that happens, you actually get a this von Willebrand factor deficiency, and then your platelets are just totally dysfunctional. There's too many of them, and so it saturates this, and then you actually get bleeding problems. Hmm. Fun times. So platelets are yeah. are on a strict curve there. Okay, so <laughs> getting back to getting back to testosterone. Then, so you're talking about how you know if someone's concerned about changes in blood viscosity for those reasons, something like donating blood. 
uh, how how often just the routine like every nine month schedule or I think you can do it every three months. Yeah, so I think like whatever Canadian Blood Services would would recommend. I think yeah, you can do it as often as three months, but you've got to be have enough blood in between that's built back up in order to safely continue to donate those people are like vampires i donate blood and they send me these like guilty emails like literally the day after i qualify for donation it's you could be saving somebody's life by coming in and donating actually we talked about this the other day offline (laughs) and i i went and gave blood um and i i I talked to one of the nurses there and I was like, why don't you just let people come in when it's, if you want people's blood so bad, why is it such a process? And why is the clinic as far to the South (laughs) of the city as possible? And I, uh, actually I won't even get to this. So they sent me a survey of like, give us your feedback. And I actually took time to fill it out with with all of the things that I think they could be doing. And so this tells you that the only people that fill out these surveys are somebody who's got an ax to grind. 100%. And I had an ax to grind Uh, because that day I went in there. And of course you have to make an appointment to go in. I'm sure if you walked in, you're like, I didn't make an appointment. They'd figure it out, but they'd put you behind everyone else who had an appointment in the queue, which I suppose is fair. But while this is happening, there's no less than six nurses just standing around having a powwow. And it's like that every time I go. There's a whole team of nurses doing nothing, sitting around talking to each other. And it's like you can't accommodate walk-ins, but this can happen on taxpayer dime. And that's basically right. what I said is like yeah. at least make it appear <laughs> as if the system is efficient. Meanwhile, over at the <laughs> hospital, they're eight nurses short on the night shift. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> Anyhow, getting back to it. Yeah. Okay. So you need to have your your hematocrit checked before you consider starting therapy. You need to have your PSA checked, and then it needs to be monitored throughout. So I guess the one other proviso is that when once you start, you need to be in the mindset that this is going to be probably a lifelong thing, if not for many, many years. So you need to be committed to the therapy and the monitoring that goes along with it. And you need to have a relationship with a physician who's going to be doing those things for you and working with you all that time. Because it's not like, ah, we can just, here's a box of syringes and uh, you go out and you just do it and that's that's it. Yeah. So um, so there's that. And then, I mean, there's, there's the different types of testosterone replacement that, that exists. So there's everything from oral versions, which I don't recommend because of the effects on the liver. Um, but the, the two most common ones would be uh, androgel. So it's a, a topical transdermal gel that you like rub on your back and shoulders. Which apparently works day. surprisingly well. Yeah. Which I, I wouldn't have thought that something like a cream yeah. would effectively increase your testosterone levels. Yeah. Especially I, just, I, without still, I don't know if I'd want to be covered in cream. Well, like you also <laughs> get into the issue of like if, if you're a parent and I think you got to probably be pretty careful about application and residue and touching your kids. Right. Or your kid. Like, could you imagine your kid getting into your testosterone cream? Like, that's got to have permanent yeah. potential effects on your. Why is my eight year old so <laughs> jacked? Yeah. Uh, so, so that's that's an option, and the the benefit of that is it probably more closely mimics the normal biological production of testosterone. So, as we know, it fluctuates throughout the day because you're making 
amounts of testosterone every day. Yeah. So by applying it every day, you're getting you know a slight increase in serum levels, and then it goes down in a daily basis. Whereas the other more common form is either subcutaneous or intramuscular injections, which you would typically take either <coughs> once a week or once every two weeks. So you're taking a larger dose, but then that's supposed to last you several days. So you've got you know super physiologic levels probably for the first couple of days, and then by the end of the week you're back down into the deficiency range. So, you know it's 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 good in the sense that you know how much is going in, whereas with the transdermal gel there's probably some variability in how much is successfully absorbed based on how well you're applicating it and you know do you take a shower soon after what you know your clothes rubbing on it is that going to remove some of it um anyways we just you just need to take those things into consideration but the probably the the best version now is taking a weekly injection or even a twice weekly injection with a bit of a smaller dose will get you closest to normal physiologic levels. I've read that uh, <laughs> that subcutaneous injections are actually superior to intramuscular in a lot of ways. And one of those ways being that <clears throat> when you go into the fat rather than in the muscle, there's a more controlled, uh, longer release of testosterone. And I also read, and I don't recall why this is the case, but it's actually more efficient. So you get higher overall testosterone levels with less actual testosterone injecting into fat tissue versus the muscle. And again, I, I don't know why that is. I can't, and yeah. I don't understand why that would be, but it does seem that some people in that space are shifting more towards uh, subcutaneous rather than That's what I've seen, yeah. And yeah. I would think that doing uh, something like an intramuscular injection, at least by perception would feel like it carries more risk and is it's probably not an easy thing for somebody to do is jam a needle inside of the muscle belly yeah. a couple times each week i mean i guess well, it's like that classic scene from the goes. the movie the program right with the, the <laughs> giant linebacker in the locker room is injecting it into his glute yeah um yeah i mean you got a long enough needle <laughs> you can you can get it in there and yeah, probably your probably your butt is the best place to put it um <laughs> what else um i was i was gonna ask about side effects uh like less not uh like local side effects of the injection or? no 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 so um rather than the gynecomastia is that what you're anything along <laughs> anything along yeah. those lines where if you start taking testosterone exogenously not just what might show up on a blood test but unwanted side effects that somebody could pick up on that might indicate that they're they're taking too much sure so the the unwanted side effects so hair loss and i mean that just depends on the person and whether they care about that or not. I mean, I'm already losing my hair, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. you'd prefer not to accelerate the process. Uh, yeah, well, we all know what's coming. <laughs> uh, and then acne would be another one. So again, I think you have to be at pretty high levels in order to so basically that testosterone increases oil production uh, in the glands in your skin. So uh, you're more likely to get clogged pores and develop some some acne. So you just need to you know, perform good hygiene, obviously. Um, but that's something to watch out for. And then gynecomastia, which is uh, breast tissue development, particularly behind the nipples, 
is also something that can happen. And the reason for that is so testosterone is also converted to estrogen by an enzyme called aromatase. And this is a normal process. So all men have detectable estrogen levels, which is uh, crucial for bone health because it's the most potent, potent hormone that uh, increases bone density. Uh, but you can end up with levels that are a bit too high. So if, if this is happening, if you're getting tender nipples or developing tissue below the nipples, which is palpable, um, then probably you're on too much or you need to get your estradiol levels checked as well because um, there is person-to-person variation in how active your aromatase enzyme is. So some people are really efficient aromatizers and may uh, increase their estrogen or estradiol levels quite a bit uh, on testosterone replacement. So, you know, there, there are some circumstances where um, people will be put on a, a low-dose aromatase inhibitor along with their testosterone replacement in order to avoid the estrogenic effects. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, th- I think you need you need to be really closely monitored and working with somebody who really knows what they're doing because the there are significant risks to using aromatase inhibitors, especially at the doses that they're typically used, including uh, reduction in bone mineral density. Yeah, I've I've read that in uh, that it's a big problem in bo- bodybuilding circles because <clears throat> I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah. In that world where people are traditionally, maybe not so much these days, but, uh, you know, a decade ago and beyond, most were taking their anabolics illegally uh, and probably had the mindset of testosterone's good, estrogen's bad. So when they get their blood work done, any amount of estrogen, if they know they can bring it down with an aromatase inhibitor, then they probably take those those interventions quite liberally right plus from a from a physique standpoint yeah and now they end up pecs you don't want the breasts yeah and now they end (laughs) up with all of these uh health issues not necessarily just because of the quantity of testosterone and other anabolics that they're taking but also what they're taking alongside to try and reduce the amount of uh the amount of things like estrogen hormones like estrogen which are seen as feminine but are essentially (laughs) essentially essential <laughs> for uh for proper function <laughs> well in, said in in men as well yeah no and that's it that's exactly it and this is like this is why we actually recommend so if, if a woman had breast cancer and is put on uh an aromatase inhibitor after surgery because they had estrogen receptor positive breast cancer tissue then they're only on that for you know usually about about five years sometimes it'll be extended to 10 years but it's a limited duration because we know that once you're so far out and you've been monitored and there's no evidence of recurrence then the risk of the treatment of the uh, aromatase inhibitor is actually greater than the risk of recurrence of the breast cancer at that point so we take people off of it gotcha yeah okay so what else i feel like we've covered quite a bit here what else uh I mean, if so, if you test positive for for low testosterone, that's not the end of the diagnostic story. So it needs to be confirmed. So usually two or three times it needs to be checked to determine that it's uh, that it's a consistent finding because of the possible fluctuations. So you can expect that. So if you get a single low value, that doesn't mean okay, here we go with with TRT right away. It needs to be confirmed, uh, and then there will be other testing along with that to determine is this a primary or a secondary problem so is this your testicles aren't working anymore and producing testosterone or is this actually that you have low 
uh, gonadotropins coming from your pituitary gland that are the hormones responsible for telling the testes to make the testosterone. So we will check those pituitary hormones, LH and FSH, and determine whether or not this is a central problem coming from your brain or, or the pituitary, or is it coming from uh, testes. Uh, most of the time, it's actually a problem with LH and FSH production, so it's coming centrally from the pituitary gland, and that is more likely to be related to stress, high cortisol levels, day-to-day -day stress, poor sleep, metabolic health issues, than is primary gonadal failure. Gotcha. And what would someone do for that? So for that, you need to look at all of those lifestyle things that I mentioned. So again, before you go on TRT, we need to make sure you're doing all the right stuff. You're, you're getting an adequate amount and quality of sleep. Your diet is improved. You're not eating a bunch of ultra-processed crap, which is going to affect your hormonal regulation. Uh, and then the amount of stress in your life has a, a majorly outsized effect on hormones. And if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, that makes sense. So if you're in a stress state, you're not probably in a mating state. So we, you don't need as much testosterone kicking around necessarily to think about reproducing. You're focused on other things, preservation of you know fat and whatever else to help you survive. Gotcha. Okay. We wrap this up. I think so. So what do you what we'll finish with what are the steps that that somebody should take if they're feeling a way that that makes them concerned about having this potential issue. Yeah. So if you're having any of those top tier symptoms with the decreased sex drive, uh, decreased or absent uh, erections in night or in the morning, then ask your physician to, to check your testosterone levels and, and take it from there. And then if you're experiencing consistently any of the other second tier symptoms with the fatigue and memory issues and weakness, et cetera, and you're not sure why, and you've looked at your lifestyle stuff and everything seems to be okay, then that's another reason to go and have a conversation with your physician about uh, getting your testosterone levels checked. And you know, you just have to have that open dialogue with them. People are gonna hear different things and different messages from their physicians and that's okay. Um, but there are also you know, potentially men's health clinics and or you could ask for a uh, referral to urologists are probably the most common specialty that deals with testosterone replacement therapy. Um, so you can always ask for, for another opinion there. Yeah, I was actually gonna, gonna ask that before we close. So what is, how much of the patient experience do you think should be patient directed? So if somebody goes in and they say, hey, I'm concerned about this, I'd like to get this blood test done. Let's just assume the physician says, okay, yeah, let's go get that blood work done. Then it comes back, it's clearly low. Let's say that they go and repeat it again and it's low again and the physician says, Oh, uh, well, I don't know if TRT is what you should be doing. I'm not comfortable prescribing that. Should the patient just go, okay, well, if that's what the doctor says, then that's what I should do. Or should they pre or should they just go somewhere else and say, no, this is what I want for myself and I want to try it. In that case, I would, I would encourage somebody to ask for a referral to, to a urologist or somebody who sees people for men's health issues, for erectile dysfunction and so on. But then they're going to be eight months waiting for that follow-up appointment with a specialist quite likely yeah and you know reference previous conversations that we've had about our healthcare system yeah <laughs> I, I don't there's not probably a quick fix to that unless couldn't you just go to a men's clinic with that's physician run or will your do it, you think that physician in that case is going to go no i'm not referring you there 
already told you that you should not. Well, this is the thing. Yeah, so if there happens to be a primary care-run men's health clinic in your area, then you can probably self-refer and just show up. If it's a specialist that you need to see, then you're going to have to convince somebody for a referral. Okay. Anything else? That is it. The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted, huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast.